Okay, so we can start. On Monday, we started talking about hypersensitivities. We looked at type 1, allergic hypersensitivity, type 2, type 3. And now we're going to talk about type 4, the last type of hypersensitivity, or an inappropriate response by the immune system, delayed type hypersensitivity, and it's also called DT, the DTH reaction. And delayed type hypersensitivity is going to be mediated by a subpopulation of T helper cells. We now know them to be Th1 cells, but when this work was first done, people didn't know about Th1 cells, so they called them T delayed type hypersensitivity cells. Right? And then for historical reasons, once people started to isolate other subclasses of T helper cells, TH1s, TH2s, people came to find out that these T cell delayed type hypersensitivity cells were really TH1 cells. So they're going to be mediated by TH1 cells, okay? And the reaction itself is going to be characterized by a large influx of macrophages, which are going to be activated by cytokines released by the T cells themselves. And once the macrophages get there, there's going to be an inflammatory reaction. So those white blood cells, the macrophages, the, white, the neutrophils are going to release enzymes and mediators that are going to cause tissue damage, just like the inflammatory reaction we've been talking about. And it's called delayed type hypersensitivity because it can take anywhere from two to three days for the reaction to develop. So in terms of what's taking place, small lipid-soluble antigens are going to complex with skin cells, which are going to st stimulate the Langerhans cells, right, those antigen-presenting cells we talked about in the skin itself. So these lipid-soluble antigens are going to be able to cross the skin, right, they're going to be moving across the skin, absorbed into the skin. The T cells are going to recognize the antigen. Interleukin-2 is going to be released, more Th1 cells are going to become activated, certain cytokines and other factors are going to activate the macrophages, everything we've talked about, right? Interferon gamma, TNF, migration inhibition factor, we really haven't talked a lot about migration inhibition factor, but migration inhibition factor, as its name implies, keeps macrophages and other white blood cells in the area, right? It's a, T it's a, a cytokine that doesn't let them leave. So we're all pretty well versed, I'm sure, in type 4 hypersensitivity reactions. A okay. couple of examples are the TB time test. And everybody, I'm sure, in here has had the TB time test. Once you got admitted to the university, you had to go through the TB time test. You had to make sure right, that you weren't exposed to tuberculosis. So you go to take your TB time test, and everybody in a health office Everybody in the doctor's office, they always tell you, come in on a Monday, come in on a Tuesday, come in on a Wednesday. Don't come in on Thursday, and don't come in on Friday. Why? It's a delayed type hypersensitivity reaction. They don't want to have to come in on Saturday or Sunday if you have your TB test on Thursday or Friday. Right? So you go, and somebody takes that pin-like contraption, they dip it into some, some antigens that come from tuberculosis, 
they knock it into your skin, and they're looking for a reaction in your skin. They're basically looking for that reaction that we talked about when we were looking at that, that allergy reaction. They're looking for an indication of a positive test. If you have a positive test, it means you probably have been exposed to tuberculosis, right? then you have some explaining to do. Or they're going to tell you to go to the doctor right away. But there are certain individuals in other parts of the world, right, like in Asia and Canada, where people are routinely immunized against tuberculosis. Right? It's called the, what's the test called? I forget what the test is called. Three initials. BCG. It's the BCG test. Okay? So other public health organizations across the world feel that if you take the BCG and you're immunized, right, you're vaccinated with BCG, it can protect you from tuberculosis. The Center for Disease Control isn't quite convinced, based on scientific evidence, or the scientific evidence that they're looking at, that that protects anybody against TB. Right? So usually people in the United States and Europe aren't immunized against TB, but other individuals are. So that's another reason you could get a positive time test. Another example, everybody knows about poison ivy. Right? You go out. Maybe not so much now, although you can still get poison ivy now and poison oak and poison sumac, right? Because it's the plant itself. So sometime in the spring, let's say we're going to have a bad, now I'm not going to jinx us. Let's say we have a nice winter this year, right? So sometime in March, you go up to the Blue Hills and you start walking around and you put your shorts on and you decide, oh, this is awesome. And you bring your dog and everybody's walking around. Two or three days later, all of a sudden you look down on your ankle and it's, uh-oh, right, starting to itch. He said, darn, I should have worn my socks, or man, I shouldn't have pet my dog so much. Right, two to three days later, delayed type hypersensitivity reaction. That lipid-soluble molecule is going to make its way from, right, this is an example of poison oak, but it's poison sumac, poison ivy, right, pentadecacatechol. One of the oils that gets released from the plant itself gets absorbed into the skin. It interacts with proteins in the skin itself and interacts with proteins on the surface of certain cells. Cytotoxic T cells are able to recognize those altered proteins now because they are altered proteins because this lipid is binding to these proteins. So this is a protein that these T cells and these antibody molecules, well, not so much antibody molecules, but these T cells have never recognized before, that they've never seen before. So they're going to start their attack on them. Right? The T cells are going to be able to attack. Any particular time in the population, 15 to 30 percent of individuals have no reaction. About 25 percent of the people I'm one of them, have a very strong reaction to poison ivy. Right? I just sort of get near poison ivy and I get poison ivy. All right? So it's some sort of genetic component is taking place. About 50 million cases annually. Right? It's a lot of cases. And the other good thing about climate change, as if mild winters and increasing coastlines weren't enough, is with the increases of CO2 in the atmosphere, poison ivy loves carbon dioxide. So poison ivy is growing like crazy these days because there's an increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Right? So 
you're allergic to poison ivy, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. So the lipid-soluble molecule makes its way through the skin, and we get a reaction taking place, right? Again, doesn't matter. You can scratch your poison ivy all you want. You can move around, right, all those blisters all you want. There's no sort of extra poison ivy poison in those blisters, right? Those are just blisters forming from the, from the, uh, from the inflammatory reaction. The only bad thing about if you itch too much, you could get those, right, those areas infected. Because if you're going to itch, you're going to break them apart. You're going to allow bacteria to get inside. So that's the problem that comes with poison if you itch too much. The other one, contact dermatitis. Okay? You all know, or by now, every single cosmetic that's out there right, is hypoallergenic. Right? They still put allergen in there, even though it's a right, you could explain to the cosmetic people that it's really not an allergy. It's a type 4 hypersensitivity. But right, the word allergic is sort of an umbrella term, right? Eh, you can be allergic to anything. So you get allergic to your cosmetics, right? Because there were certain ingredients that when you put the cosmetics on, doesn't have to be just females, right? If you had some sort of whatever, then those lipid-soluble molecules are going to cross, and then you can get contact dermatitis from certain cosmetics, right? You can get contact dermatitis from certain metals because the big ions of the metal itself are able to leach off the metal and cross and make their way across the skin itself, right? This time of year, you're in some place, and a street corner, somebody comes up and says, hey, I got some nice gold rings if you're interested. Really? Are they real gold? Absolutely. They're 14 karat gold. Really? Oh, yeah, my grandmother died, and I have to sell them. Oh, okay. How much? A hundred bucks for a 14 karat gold ring? Fine, I'll take it. Bring it home. Give it to somebody that you care about. Three or four days later, they start looking and, hey, my finger's turning green. Hey, my finger's itching. Delayed type hypersensitivity. That yellow gold, that, ye no, sorry, right? When you work at Lost and Found, you can never identify it as a gold ring. You have to identify it as a yellow metal ring. So that yellow metal ring that you brought home, sorry, it's not 14 karat gold, it's 14 karat copper. Right? It's the copper ions are making their way across. So it's now, right, two to three days later, you go back to that same corner in downtown Boston, guess what? You and your money are not there anymore, right? Well, you're there, but your money's not there, and you're clearly not going to find that person. So contact dermatitis can come from metals as well, again. Right? We're going to those, they're not sort of lipid-soluble antigens now, but they are ions that are going to be able to come across, interact with proteins, and the same thing is going to be able to take place. Right? You're going to get the, allerg the, uh, the allergic reaction. So if we look at all these hypersensitivity reactions, that type 1, right, like blood transfusions happen within minutes, type 3, type 2 and 3 can happen within hours, and then type 4, delayed type hypersensitivity reactions, anywhere from a, a day to a couple of days later. So, hypersensitivity reactions. Moving right along, next up on our hit parade of looking at things in more detail, 
because that's what we're doing in these last couple of weeks. We're looking at things in more detail. Transplantation. Talked a little bit about transplantation when we introduced MHC molecules. Right? We talked about autografts and xenografts. Right? Let's start looking a little bit more in depth at what happens during the immune system during transplantation. Right? So it's the act of transferring cells, tissues, or organs from one site to another. Right? So if you remember, when we talked about MHC molecules, and we talked about an allograft, right, and a xenograft, we talked about transferring those cells, tissues, organs to other places on the individual's own body, or transferring those cells, tissues, or organs to other individuals themselves. Right? Could be of the same species, could be of different species, right? But anyway, we're going to take the cells themselves, the somatic cells, and we're going to transplant them. So the first transplants were performed in the early 1900s. And these were moving organs around in the same animal. Right? Movement between animals was an abysmal failure. Right? In those early sort of surgery days. Right? This was all surgery at this point in time. It wasn't really immunology. We didn't know about MHC molecules. So it was a, a failure. By 1945 or so, we found that rejection was an immunological response. That's when the AB, right, the ABO antigens, and also MHC were starting to, starting to be looked at. And a lot of these experiments and data came during World War II. It's a horrible way to think of an advance in medicine from such a horrific thing that took place, but this is where a lot of this information came from. Because if you were in, let's say you were in the Army those days, and you were serving, and you were a physician, and you had these horrific sort of injuries that came back to where you were, and you were trying different blood transfusions, and you were trying different ways to try to save individuals, right? You're out there on the field, you're doing the best you can. You took a lot of that experience with you, and when you came back to your academic career, that's what you started to look at. That's what you started to investigate. So you had a certain amount of data that came with you because you already performed some of those experiments. You took blood from mismatched individuals. You took, perhaps, right blood from individuals that were similar, and those individuals lived. Right? So we got a lot of those experiments during World War II themselves. It wasn't until the 1950s or so that immunosuppressive drugs and the first successful kidney transplant took place. 1935, without using drugs, people started to do kidney transplants, and they did eventually work. Right? The surgical skills were developed enough to work, but it was the immunological effects of those transplantations that hindered right, those kidney cells from functioning properly. It wasn't until 1954 in Boston that the first successful kidney transplant was done. Right? I think I. They mentioned it just two or three weeks ago. The original physician who first did it just died. Right? So that was the first time that we had a successful kidney transplant. As it turns out, it was between two brothers. Some people think that the brothers were identical twins. Some people think that they hyped up the fact that, oh, look, Harvard did the first kidney transplant. But we're not going to go there. Anyway, that's considered to be the first kidney transplant that took place in 1954. So, have a whole bunch of 
transplantations that take place or a whole bunch of organs that are being trans, right, transplanted these days. Anywhere from corneas right, to bone, skin, we all hear about lung transplants and heart transplants. Right? Livers grow back rather quickly when they're transplanted. Kidneys, right? Kidneys are probably the major ones that, are, that happen these days. Right? So kidneys are transplanted a lot. We're pretty good at our survival for kidneys, right? Almost 75%. Right? Livers and hearts, pancreas. So almost any organ or any tissue that we can think about transplanting, we can probably transplant it these days. A lot of times when you go to the motor vehicle department, they want to know, you can check the box if you want to be a organ donor. If you die, your organs will be right, harvested, oh, I hate to think of it that way, but your organs will be harvested and then they can be used as right, organs for transplantation studies by other individuals themselves. So if we look at those things that are taking place. Everything we know, right, we, are, we know why this takes place. Right? Immunological memory is in effect. Once those T cells that have been educated to ignore your self tissues come into contact with that grafted tissue, the immune response is going to turn on. Okay. So if we do that experiment, right, when we put, when we were talking about B cell memory and B cell effector, effector cells, and we had the graph, right, with where we're releasing IgM after seven or eight days, and then we're going to release IgG after five or six days after coming into contact. We had that little graph on the bottom that talked about T cells and T cells being able to do that. So that first set rejection, just like B cells, just like B cells, takes about 14 days, right, for antibody molecules to be released. The same thing's going to happen, and we know Right. We're still talking about this 14-day right, sort of window, and we know that that's how long it takes approximately, right, anywhere from about 10 days or so, for cytotoxic T cells to become activated to be cytotoxic T lymphocytes. So those CD8 positive T cells have to be activated. They have to, they have to recognize that mismatch in the MHC. Right, and they're going to differentiate this, those uh, cytotoxic T lymphocytes. Second set rejections, the same, rejected in about six days. So we have that memory takes place. And it's all due to those T cells, the CD4 positive T cells, the CD8 T cells, and the interaction with the MHC molecules themselves. So synergistic, graph is tolerated, right, if the MHC background is the same. The MHC background is different. It's going to be rejected. If we do it again, it's going to be rejected that much faster. Right? We can transfer T cells right, into a naive animal, and we can allow that graft to be rejected. If we add antibodies to CD4, we can allow that the graft will survive a little bit more if we add antibodies to CD8. If we add a combination of antibodies to CD4 and CD8, that means we're basically destroying the T cells then the graft can last a lot longer. So immunological memory is going to be in effect. If we're looking at the graft itself, right, sort of in this cartoon-like figure, we're talking about an autograft, so there was some sort of damage in the skin. We're taking a piece of, of skin epidermis from another part of the body, 
war from an MHC individual who's identical. We're going to put that piece of skin on. If we do everything the right way, surgically, from a, from, a, from a technique point of view, right? We're not nicking any arteries and we're not sewing in any extra needles or anything, right? Into the individual themselves. We get revascularization. That's the first thing that's going to take place because that's much more important, right? We need to get the blood, the blood capillaries present so that we can bring nutrients and cells of the immune system. We're going to heal and by 14 days or so, resolution, right? When we talked about inflammation, we talked about what can take place, right? So this is resolution. It's as if it never took place. Right? We have no scar, we have no anything. If, on the other hand, we're going to take a piece of skin from a different individual, right? We're still going to get revascularization because that's not going to be affected, right? Because the revascularization is going to happen from Right, those macrophages, those M2 macrophages, right? remember when we talked about the M2 macrophages that were involved in tissue right, sort of reconstruction, they're going to release a whole bunch of different cytokines and a whole bunch of different fa uh, growth factors to have revascularization takes place, so nothing happens to revascularization. But as those capillaries start to form and now the immune system can come into contact with this grafted piece of skin, changes in the MHC molecules, right, blah, blah, blah. We're going to get inflammation, we're going to get rejection. If we do it, a second set of the same, right, same skin, three to four days later, five to six days later, it gets rejected as opposed to 10 to 14 days later. If, on the other hand, we come back in with a grafted epithelia, epidermis from a third, uh, from a third individual, Right, then we're going to get this, right, that same sort of graph that we talked about with antibody molecules. We can keep doing this as long as we keep adding new skin from new individuals. Right, we can still keep getting this one, but as soon as we come back and get a second set, then we're going to get a quicker rejection of that graft. So all these things are going to be able to take place. Sometimes, yike, this can lead to certain things. So this was a case on Long Island where a husband and a wife, at one point in time, they loved each other. Right? You'll, you'll see this on the news at least once or twice a year. Right? I love my wife so much, I gave her my kidney. Ooh, I love my husband so much, I gave him my kidney. Now, 25% of the time, right, on average, 25% of the time in a non-random mating event, you can get individuals who can be closely related to each other. Right? So sometimes, it's not because the husband loved the wife so much or the wife loved the husband so much. They got lucky. Right? They didn't have such a mismatch. And we'll talk about mismatch MHC alleles in a minute. They didn't have such a mismatch. So they were able to act as a donor for either the husband or the wife. In this case, when they were all happy and in the honeymoon stage, absolutely, dear, you can have my kidney. Several years later, during the divorce, I want my kidney back. <laughs> and as it turns out, he did get his kidney back, not in, not in kind, but he got it back in trade. I guess they came up with a figure for how much it would have cost to buy a kidney. I don't know where you find this, but I, I guess you can find that list someplace on the internet. So they came up with some sort of price. So in the divorce settlement, he got an extra five grand or something. I don't know. But anyway, 
So, what do we know about graft rejection in, in general? Right? What we know about graft rejection in general, that it's principally caused by cell-mediated response to alloantigens, right? those MHC molecules, inappropriate antigens expect on the cells, usually the endothelial cells of the graft itself. Right? So think about, right, surgically what we're doing. And in my best picture of a kidney, right, that's what we're doing. There, so there's the renal artery, right? So basically we've got to reconnect the renal artery. So this is the graft. This is now the host. And if we're real good surgeons and we do everything the right way and we keep our kidney in ice and we keep it well oxygenated and everything works okay, right, and we put our sutures in here right, and we allow that connection to take place and we have our clamp right there, right, the last thing we're going to do when we finish up here, well, before we stitch the person up and make sure that we're not going to leave the clamp in there, right, the last thing we do is we release that clamp and the blood starts to flow, right? And what, you know, everybody always looks, okay, the organ's pinking up or it's bluing, but it's doing something, right? It's changing. It looks like it's working okay, right? We don't have any leaks, right? It's getting a little bit, it's, it's bulging out because it's getting more blood into it. So, as these white cells now, right, we don't care so much about the red cells. Well, we do care about the red cells because we need to oxygenate the, the organ itself. But anyway, so these white blood cells, the first thing they're going to come into contact with, right, as they're bouncing along here, because some of them are going to bounce along, they're going to come into contact with these endothelial cells. Right? And as they go deeper and deeper inside, they're going to come into contact with more and more endothelial cells. So that's the first sort of alarm that's going to go off, right? These white blood cells in here are going to hit that and go, uh-oh, we have a problem. Right? Immune system doesn't know that if we didn't have this kidney, right, if this graft wasn't in the body, we're dead. Right? All the immune system knows is, I have an invader, I have to destroy it. Right? So, that's that first sort of interaction that's going to take place. 14 days later, right, it's gonna, the interaction is going to take place. So, rejection can be divided into two stages. The first stage is sensitization. The realization Again, not human-like realization. The white blood cells don't go, hey, wait a minute. Right? We're looking at the interaction between the MHC and the T cell receptor. CD4 positive, CD8 positive T cells recognize that foreign antigen right, expressed on the cells of the graft and they start to proliferate. Right? That foreign protein, that foreign antigen is a, is a non-self MHC molecule. Right? Probably a class 1 MHC molecule. The graft, right? can also be involved, the graft antigen presenting cells, right, because there will still be some cells inside that kidney. Right? You try and you try and you try, so when you remove the kidney from the individual who is donating the kidney, you take lots and lots of saline, right, and you just start flushing out the kidney. You just flush it out and wash it out and flush it out, right, you're trying to get rid of all the blood, you're trying to get rid of everything. Right, that could possibly still be inside that kidney, but you're not really going to be able to get every single cell out. So some of those cells inside the graft itself are going to come along with the graft. And these are called passenger leukocytes. 
So these passenger leukocytes can migrate to the lymph node and stimulate T cells. Right, so what's going to take place here? Here comes our donor kidney. So first off, the host right, blood supply is making its way into the kidney. Once we undo that clamp and we allow the blood to go in, then the circulation inside the kidney starts to take place. Cells that are still part of the original graft, of the original donor, white blood cells, right, T cells, uh, macrophages, all sorts of other cells, they're going to make their way back into circulation. What are they going to do? They're going to do what they normally do. They're going to recirculate. One of the places that they're going to recirculate to could be a lymph node. Once they get into that lymph node, or as they're interacting with dendritic cells or other cells in the area, they get back into the, into the, in this case, a lymph node itself, and now, right, they're right in the middle of enemy territory, and now the, the alarm goes from these cells inside the lymph node, right, based on mismatched MHC molecules that are taking place inside the lymph node itself. So that's why you try to wash out your kidneys as much as you possibly can. And again, right, all it takes is one cell. So the more you wash and the less this takes place, the better off you're going to have right, survival of the, of the graft itself. But clearly that is going to take place. Once that sensitization play, phase takes place, then we have the effector stage. Right? We can get a delayed type hypersensitivity reaction, Th1 cells. We can get CTL-mediated cytotoxicity. NK cells are going to be able to come inside and interact to itself itself, right? Again, it takes about 14, 10 to 14 days or so for those CTL cells to become right, activated from cytotoxic T cells. Sometimes complement lysis, ADCC can take place too, right? Not so much to the tissues itself, but right, to some of these cells it can take place, the red blood cells that are inside. Right? All those things are going to be able to take place. Because remember, this will be loaded with red blood cells too. And if we, don't, if we have an ABO problem, then all those red blood cells that came with the donor kidney are going to be eliminated. Right? Probably by complement-mediated activities. The T cell itself is very involved. Right? So the antigen-presenting cells right, are up there, and if they're able to Right? interact if they come from passenger lymphocytes or wherever they come from. Those T helper cells are going to release cytokines. Those cytokines are going to be involved with inter, uh, stimulating those CD8 positive cells themselves. Right? We're going to interact. We're going to make stimulation of, right? these are T DTH. They still call them DTH in this particular picture. Hopefully they will update that and call these TH1 cells. Right? And they're going to be able to all attack the graft itself. But again, this could be graft, this could be red blood cell, this could be any cell that is being transplanted into the individual themselves. Right? So we can have all these different sort of cytotoxic reactions, right? Because everything here is cytotoxic because it's all cell-derived. Right? So all these cytotoxic reactions are going to be able to take place. In terms of What's taking place, we can get three different types of reactions. And we've talked about two of them so far. 
we can get a hyperacute rejection. The graft is going to be rejected almost immediately, right? Type 1 delayed type hypersensitivity reaction within 24 hours. Repeated by repeated blood transfusions. So a hyperacute reaction, right? Patient comes into the ER, what's the blood type? We need to know what the blood type is, right? We're not going to lose this person, right? Five minutes after they come into the ER. Those pre-existing antibodies, we're going to get antigen-antibody complexes, we'll get complement activation, right? Neutrophil infiltration by blood group mismatches, right? And also by previous graphs. So this hyperacute rejection could be, if we go back to that picture, hyperacute rejection, uh, well, no, hyperacute rejection right here because it's going to happen that much faster. It's going to happen relatively quickly. So that's the first thing that can happen. Or we can get what's called acute rejection. And that's regular old rejection. Right? We've looked. We're going to make sure that the ABO blood groups are OK. We're not going to get any type of hyperacute rejection. This is sort of normal. It's exactly what that picture just showed, right? Normal rejection, anywhere from 10 to 14 days. Massive infiltration of T cells and macrophages into the graft itself, just like that picture showed. Right? This is what we're doing, right? Clinically, this is what we want to stop. Right? If we're transplant surgeons, if we're transplant immunologists, this is what we're going to try to stop, is the acute rejection, right? Acute rejection is sort of like normal rejection. Right? We know what to do about this. Right? We don't graft the same tissue into the individual itself. And we make sure that we don't have an improper blood match. So now we've got to worry about that acute rejection phenomena. Right? And that's basically what we'll talk about for the rest of the time. The other thing that can take place is called chronic rejection. And chronic rejection, something happens. Right? We've made it past the acute rejection phase, right? We think the patient is okay. We send the patient home, and then something takes place. The mechanism is just the same as an, as an acute rejection because it looks like an acute rejection when the patient presents. We're just not sure of why it takes place. Right? Develops months to years after an acute rejection has subsided, perhaps the patient stops taking medication that the patient needs to take. Perhaps the pa right? Perhaps there's something wrong. Perhaps there's you know, some pathology, some infectious disease. Something takes place. We're really not sure. But it can look like right, we send the patient home. We wish them good luck. They come in for a follow-up visit months to years later. They're still doing fine. And something takes place, and the acute rejection phenomena starts. We can give other drugs, we can do other things, but we're really not sure as to why right, a patient would regress from an acute rejection to a chronic rejection. Right. So what are we going to do? What we're going to do is we're going to try to use some immunosuppressive drugs. Right. We're going to immunosuppress the individual patient. Right. We're going to turn off the immune system. Most of the drugs that were used in the early days were drugs that were going to result in a general immunosuppression. We're turning off everything. 
If this patient doesn't get this kidney, this patient's going to die. If this patient doesn't get this heart, this patient's going to die. Without this lung, or these lungs, this patient is going to die. So, better that the patient is going to live and be at a certain disadvantage for developing infectious diseases, but we'll deal with that later. We're going to use this general immunosuppression. It's not specific. It slows proliferation of all rapidly dividing cells. It's the same thing we talked about when we talked about chemotherapeutic uh, reagents. They stop rapidly dividing cells. So a lot of the drugs that are used for chemotherapy are also used as general immunosuppressive drugs. Because again, we don't care. Right? This patient needs to get this kidney. We'll worry about right, the immune system later on. Now, clearly, we could, if we wanted to, as transplant surgeons, we could have a 100% success rate. We would just immunosuppress the heck out of the patient. We would kill the immune system. Then all of our transplants, all of our grafts would take, but that individual would not have a, a nice, happy life, right? They'd have to be inside, they'd have to be protected from in infectious diseases, they'd have to be breathing sterile air, they'd have to drink sterile water, right? We'd have to keep them away, they couldn't go to Disneyland, they couldn't go to the beach, right? So no patient wants that. So we have to be able to think of something, right? So immunosuppressive agents, just like we talked about before. So we're going to turn off the T cells, we're going to turn off epithelial cells, we're going to turn off the stem cells, right? In a general sort of a way just so that we can have this take place. Right? And we're going to do this with a whole bunch of different classes of drugs. Right? Mitotic inhibitors, right? like cyclophosphamide. Right? They all stop DNA synthesis in one way or the other. Right? That's what they all share. They all act on the cell cycle. They act on cells in the S phase, and they try to keep them right, from dividing. Studies on these mitotic inhibitors they weren't by the, they weren't Nobel Prizes in medicine, they were probably Nobel Prizes in, in chemistry, but these experiments, these types of pharmacological agents or these chemicals were developed in the late 1950s, early 1960s or so. Right? So they got two Nobel Prizes for working on these in 1987 and 1991. Because right? individuals came back and using chemical synthesis, Right? And all my organic chemistry majors in here know, right? like we talked about, right? we're changing atoms, we're changing whatever we're doing, right? to be able to. So that had some general use in terms of chemistry and how to manipulate right? certain atoms and what they were working on, certain compounds, right? and that's what they were working on with these mitotic in in inhibitors to be able to make them more patent, more patent, more potent and less, right? less sort of in general. So that's what they were working on. So these were early on, these mitotic inhibitors were used a lot. Corticosteroids, right? prednisone, dexamethasone were used. They're cholesterol derivatives that can cross the cell membrane and they can work in a general immunosuppression, right? A lot of people take steroids. They bind to receptors in the cytosol. Because they are cholesterol derivatives, they can cross the cell membrane. They're
transported to the nucleus where they bind to regulatory DNA sequence and either upregulate or downregulate transcription. Right? That's how they're working. That's how the, the corticosteroids work. They also have direct toxic effects on lymphocytes. They can inhibit macrophage phagocytosis. Right? They all work right, by inhibiting the immune response. They can inhibit class 2 MHC expression. They can inhibit cytokine production. Right? So we're not going to get any sort of activation of the immune response. So that's how these inhibitors work. Again, they act as a general immunosuppressive agent itself. In the 1970s, right, we came with a, with a, a big sort of breakthrough. Cyclosporin A and rampamycin. They're fungal metabolites. So you're thinking, fungal metabolites? What the heck do fungal metabolites have on right, the ability to suppress T cells of the immune system? Well, if you remember when we talked about pharma, pharma, pharmacological right, or pharmaceutical companies, we said that they go out and they start to collect compounds from all over the place. So if you worked for a pharmacological company and you were going on vacation, you might bring back some dirt from wherever you were. You might bring back some dead animal that you found from wherever you were, right? A lot of, of drug compounds come from invertebrates in the ocean, right? We're going to be able to extract proteins. So we're going to take all this information, we're going to take all these, or all these things, all this stuff that people bring back, and we're going to start to isolate organisms, and we're going to start to isolate any sort of activities that we can. So that's what happened here. Somebody went to Iceland on vacation. It might be a pretty cool place to go. And they were hiking up the side of a volcano. They scooped up some dirt, I guess, the volcanic dirt. Anyway, they brought it back. They grew up certain fungi. Those fungi were secreting things. They took those chemicals. They, right, the chemists, again, took them down into the basement and handed them to the biologists and said, biologists, tell me what these are doing. And they found that they were specific right, immunosuppressive agents right, for whatever the reason. Right? It's just because these certain fungal metabolites were binding to, right? they're going to block activation of resting T cells by inhibiting transcription of interleukin-2 and interleukin-2 receptor. Right? There are certain chemicals, certain chemicals, certain mediators, certain secondary messengers inside the cell that are called immunophilins, and immunophilins are involved in getting transcription factors right, from the cytoplasm into the nucleus. Certain immun immunophilins are going to interact with NF-kappa B, I-kappa B, remember we talked about that. And this particular immun immunophilin is involved with the transcription factor NFAT. And these fungal metabolites are binding to and inhibiting this immunophilin from allowing NFAT to get into the nucleus. NFAT is a major transcription factor for interleukin-2 and the interleukin-2 receptor. Right? It just happens that, right, that it binds. It just, just, it's just serendipitous. Right? A lot of discoveries in science are serendipitous. Right? You weren't expecting it and it happens. Right? It can also inhibit, so things like cyclosporin A and rampamycin. They can also inhibit, inhibit antibody synthesis in B cells. 
and they have profound immunosuppressive properties that make them the mainstay of all transplantations these days. People aren't using right, any of the other ones. Right? They're not using corticosteroids anymore. Right? They're using things that are very similar to cyclosporin A and rampamycin. Right? So again, we're going to take the original. The original compound was cyclosporin A. We're going to bring it back upstairs to our chemistry friends and we're going to say, okay, start manipulating it, make us a better drug. Right? And all of these derivatives, like rampamycin, are derivatives and they are better and better and better at stopping T cells and better and better and better at not having effects on other cells of the body. Right? So all these things are taking place. So this is the major drug that people are using these days. A whole bunch of new reagents, right? Things that we've talked about before. Right? We can have antibodies with all sorts of different proteins. So we could have antibodies to CD3. Remember, we don't want to have antibodies to the T cell receptor. If we add antibodies to the T cell receptor, we're going to cross-link the T cells. We're going to stimulate the T cells. We don't want that to take place. So we're going to make antibodies to CD3. We can make antibodies. Right, to the interleukin-2 receptor, the alpha subunit. We can have anti-B7 antibodies. We'll talk about them in a minute. We could try to stop regulatory T cells. Or we could try to, right, actually not stop them, we can try to stimulate regulatory T cells. So we're going to give some sort of specific drug that's going to stimulate regulatory T cells to be able to send out signals to inhibit the T helper cells or the other cells of the immune system itself. So we can use all sorts of things, right? We talked about CD40 interacting with CD40 ligand. If we make antibodies to CD40 ligand, we're going to be able to stop this. We're going to make antibodies to CD3, right? Here's B7. If we stop CD28 from becoming activated, we could be able to stimulate the T cell. If we add drugs to stimulate the CTLA4 right, response, we could inhibit the T cell itself. Right? Here's cyclosporin interacting with those immunophilins inside. We have other sort of drugs that we can use that are going to in inhibit second messengers themselves. And right, these are the nonspecific ones. These are those chemotherapeutic agents that are going to interact and try to inhibit the cell cycle itself. Right, so we have all these things taking place. Right, B7 is a pretty interesting sort of drug that people are starting to look at itself. Right? We talked about B7 interacting with CD28. If we could inhibit that B7 interacting with CD28, we could be able to stimulate an energic response. Right? If we block B7 from interacting with CD28, these T cells, bless you, are going to become energic, and they're not going to be able to participate in the immune response after this. Right? So we have all these new sort of activities, these new drugs that are on the, on the, on the horizon. So, in terms of looking at the allograft rejection itself. The graft, we're trying to make the graft be less immunogenic. So what we're going to do is we're going to minimize those differences, those allogenic differences. We're going to do that first by blood type matching, right? That's going to get rid of any hyperacute rejection. And then the other thing we're going to do is we're going to start to do tissue typing. We're going to take individuals and we're going to be able to tell exactly what MHC molecules they have on the surface. We're going to tissue type donors. We're going to tissue type recipients. 
Right? A lot of times you'll see in the, in the newspaper, you'll hear on the radio, right, that certain people are having a, a drive. Certain individual might need a transplant, and they're asking individuals to come down to the local VFW or the local fire hall, right, to become tested to see if you could possibly be a donor. So the individual has already been tested itself, so we know exactly what MHC molecules are on that individual. So they're gonna take your white blood cells, right, they're gonna add antibodies to certain MHC molecules, and then they're gonna add complement Right, we're going to be able to stimulate the destruction of the cells themselves because we're going to add a lot of antibody molecules, a lot of complement. Cells that are dying, we know that those antibodies are recognizing those MHC molecules. Cells that don't die, we're able to tell that they don't have those MHC molecules on the cell surface, and we're going to be able to compare them together. Right, if that isn't working, the other thing we can do is we can do that one-way mixed lymphocyte reaction. Right, we can get information that way. So those, the, the donor's cells are going to be the responder cells, so those are the cells we're going to knock out, right, with mitomycin C, so we can do a one-way mixed lymphocyte reaction. So the larger the number of HLA molecules, either class 1, right, the better for the survival, class 2 are also important, but if we look at, right, the number of mismatches, right, or the number of, of similarities, right, if we look at the graph survival itself, the better Right? The MHC matches are, the more that individual itself is going to be able to tolerate the graft. Right? We, could get a, we could get a pretty good sort of response if we do tissue matching studies to start with. In general, matching is more predictive in Europe, where populations are more inbred. That, all due respect, I didn't use the word inbred as, as a bad thing. But if you think about, right, certain sort of populations, right, certain villages might have been populated by individuals for thousands and thousands of years. And these individuals, right, in early days, and the early days I'm talking the 1200s and the 1300s and you know, up to the 1800s perhaps, even the 1900s, a lot of these people would marry individuals in the same geographic area. They would settle in the same geographic area, right? So those MHC molecules are a little bit more homogeneous as opposed to us mutts that live in the United States, right, where we get a lot of mixing. So. Matching in Europe is a little easier to be able to do. Well, we can't, oh, oh well, we, yes, we should definitely talk about the clinical dilemma and pregnancy when we come back, right? So on Friday, we'll finish this up and we'll start talking about something new.